We are continuing on in the book of Titus. Um, we ter- currently have twins at home, and one of the things we are working hard to do is m- make them go to sleep in the evenings. And, and one of the things we've found is that uh, noise can be helpful in getting them to sleep. So uh, finding sounds or music that help them go to sleep is always uh, an important task. But one of the things that means is once you find a song or an album or things like that that allows them to go to sleep, you start listening to it over and over again, and it begins not just affecting the child, but affecting yourself as well. Uh, One of the songs that uh, is on an album that helps soothe them to sleep is uh, from Christy Knuckles. And there's a title of one of the songs in there that's called Always Remember to Never Forget. Uh, And in reading the passage that we're going over tonight, one of the things I thought of is it reminds me of that song. Because in this passage, people are being reminded of things they already know. Uh, And so in in, uh, due course, I decided to give this one of the longest titles I've ever given a message, which is always remember to never forget where you came from. And one of the things that I think of when I look at the scripture is how often the exhortation is given not to forget. You ever ever notice that as you look at scripture that we are commanded to not forget? Now, if some of you are like me and you forget why you left a room or why you came into a room, that's very, very concerning. So one of the things we're going to look at is if, if we've been called to remember, then forgetting can be a sin. In this passage, Paul is exhorting Timothy to remind believers of important truths. Uh, this week we're going to look at always remember to never forget where you came from. If I finish this message, then next week we're going to look at the uh, other side of the coin. Always remember to never forget where you are. If I don't make it through, we'll just have always remember to never forget where you came from part two. But with this idea of looking at what do we need to be reminded of, let's look together at Titus. We're going to begin at the end of chapter 2 in verse 15, and then we're going to go through chapter 3, verse 3. Hear the word of the Lord. Remind them. Oh, sorry, I I skipped ahead. Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. We have here, beginning in verse 15 of chapter 2, an exhortation 
an exhortation that's given uh, by Paul to Timothy and, and saying, hey, look, as you're teaching these things, and these things most likely refers uh, to what has come before, the exhortation to obey in light of God's grace, to obey in light of God's glory, and to live godly lives as a result of the people that God has called us to be. As he says these things, he, he gives Timothy a really a charge. Hey, declare it, exhort it, rebuke them with all authority. He says, don't let anybody disregard you. In a way, he's saying, look, it's your responsibility that they don't ignore this message. Uh, One of the things I I think of when I think about this is advertising. You know, what's an advertising that gets in your face, doesn't let you ignore it? One of the signs of a good advertising is that you notice it. If you don't notice the advertising, then it's not doing its job. Here he's saying, hey, look, these things are important, and you need to declare them in such a way that people take notice of it. Now, when I think about preaching, which is an occupational hazard, I've got to think about preaching. One of the things I I think about is uh, there's kind of two extremes you can go to. Uh, And y'all will know automatically which one of these extremes I tend toward if you've been here a while. One extreme is just concerned with the Bible. It's like, okay, I want to get a technical understanding of the, this book. I really want to understand it. Uh, I, I want to you know, get my exegesis right and come to a complete knowledge of it. And that's my goal. Now, what that section ignores is that these truths aren't, aren't just to stand here or is, is stay in here and be diagnosed. Part of the purpose of these truths is to communicate them to others. To pass it on, to transfer it. Now, the the other extreme which occurs is somebody that says, "I just really care about my audience. I want them to know. I want them to hear. I want to tell them." And they don't. Yeah, the text is there, but they're really more concerned with audience. You know, those are two kind of polar extremes. I think you all know which one I tend towards. I tend towards focusing on the text and forgetting that I'm supposed to be communicating it to a group of people. <laughs> but, but Paul is, is really saying here, look, the, the, the two things are important. You've got to have them both married together. The doctrine is absolutely important, but part of the reason why it's important is it transforms people's lives. And if you don't bring the doctrine into people's lives, you can't, they can't be transformed by it. Another thing he's saying in this is exhort and rebuke. You know, in order to rebuke somebody, you've got to kind of know what's going on in their lives. If you're not close enough to the people to tell, hey, these are the areas where they're not applying God's truth, you're in trouble. He's saying as, as you're involved in these people's lives, as you're, as you're intertwining with them, as, as you're seeing how they're living out their lives Notice where they're not applying the gospel. And when you notice that, declare the gospel boldly so and loudly so that they can't ignore it. It's kind of interesting because a lot of times we think, you know, it's up to the other person to listen. Here Paul's saying, no, no, no. It's, it's your responsibility to make them hear, Titus. 
Have I been saying Timothy? Okay, good. Uh, but sometimes I mix it up. If I say Timothy, I mean Titus. <laughs> so he encourages him to exhort these things. Now, this serves also as a a kind of a transition. Uh, At the beginning of chapter 2, we had a practical exhortation. And it was practical exhortations that were dealing with people in specific circumstances. It's talking about what the older women should do in order to rightly live out the gospel. It's talking about the way the younger women, and then the older men, and the younger men, and then the slaves. It's these particular groups and ways in which they were to properly live out the gospel. And then he gave the theological basis for it. The grace that has appeared in the past. The glory that is coming with Christ's return. Our present identity in Christ. All these things motivate this radical and practical godly living. Whereas the beginning of chapter 2 is dealing with how this uh, applies in particular situations, in in chapter 3 he begins to describe ways in which we need to apply it generally. These are things all believers ought to be doing, ways in which all believers are to be living this out. Now, chapter 3 begins uh, with the exhortation, remind them. Talking to Timothy, remind them. Uh, Now, first of all, uh, before we get into the importance of being reminded, uh, I want to talk about a a little bit uh, the language that's used in this exhortation to remind them. Now, if I I tell my wife, hey, remind me to call my mother. Now, that might mean, hey, remind me one time to call my mother to ask about a particular issue. Or it could mean, remind me to call my mother every Sunday night so I don't forget. In English, you have to use another word, not just the verb remind. You say, keep reminding me, continually remind me, in order to indicate which type of action it is, whether it's a one-time action or a continuing action. Uh, In the Greek, you can make the distinction And here the language points to that this reminding is a continual activity. It's not just remind them once and be done with it. No, it's remind them over and over and over again. Repeat it to them. Make sure that they get it. The fact is, most of us know the essential truths of Christianity, don't we? If you've been a Christian for a brief amount of time, most of the important commands we've grown up hearing and learning about. But our problem is that we're quick and eager to forget, aren't we? I don't know if you're you're ever like me. You read through the Old Testament and you see uh, the Israelites, you know, and it's and it seems like they they keep falling into this pattern, don't they? where they obey God and then things start to go well and they're, they're blessed and they kind of continue on. And then something happens, a couple generations go by, they're not as interested in God, they start falling into idolatry, they start going into sin, and then all of a sudden what happens? The nation starts falling apart, invaders start coming in, the nation starts going on the down, downfall. And then all of a sudden they repent, they turn back to God, things start going well again, and then they start forgetting again. And there's this pattern, and as you read the Old Testament, it kind of keeps happening over and over and over again, and you think, oh my goodness, 
When are they going to learn? When are they, they going to get the picture? Why do they keep doing this? It's really easy to fall into the same mistakes over and over again when you forget. Part of the sin of the Israelites was forgetting who God was and what He had done for them. By the way, do you ever notice the Ten Commandments? You know how it starts out? I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. But before the commandments are given, a relationship and a remembrance is given. Here's who I am. I'm your God. Here's what I've done. I've brought you out of Egypt. Now he tells them who he is and what he's done. Why? Because they need a reminder of it again and again and not just once. By the way, the the reminding exists not only for yourself, but for the next generation. All it takes for the next generation to forget what God has done is for the last generation to forget to tell them. Forget to remind them. The important truths, the essential truths, are necessary for people to be reminded of. C.S. Lewis says that people more often need to be reminded than they do than they need to be taught anything new there's something important about returning to foundational truths and basic obedience in in this we see that uh, it's important for Israel to do this number 1 cuz God commands it he says remember me obey me don't forget to tell the next generation about me And they do this in creative ways, too. Part of the purpose of the rituals, the ceremonies, the feasts. Think about Passover. What do they do? They they slaughter a lamb. They have a feast. What's it reminding them of? It's reminding them of the lambs they sacrificed in Egypt, whose blood they put on the doorposts, in order that the angel of death might pass over them. What's that? That's a very practical reminder of where they've come from and who their God is. When the Israelites cross over the Jordan River, one of the things they do is they take large stones and they stack them up into a monument. Why? So that when future generations walk by and say, hey, what's that pile of rocks doing there? They say, that's where the Lord brought us over. Are we building up reminders? Are we building up mementos? in our patterns, in our ceremonies, in our celebration, are we remembering who God is and what He's done for us? By the way, this is is not only just something theoretically that's practical and beneficial. It's helpful in our own lives. It's beneficial in our own life. Uh, Saints, if we have spiritual amnesia, uh, we are going to have a very rough time in this life. And I say that from, from personal experience. In fact, I'll give you uh, an example from my own life. And as in, in most things, my life serves primarily as a warning, not an example. Uh, one of the things that happens when, whenever I am changing jobs or looking for new jobs is uh, this uh, you know, kind of paranoid panic starts to set into me. Uh, I get this, the, these wild imaginations of, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? Am I going to find anything? 
uh, what happens if I don't? I'm not going to be able to provide for my family. I'm going to have to live under a bridge and beg by 240 to survive. You know, what's going to happen to me? And, and just all these fears and, and worries and, and concerns. Am I, is anybody ever going to hire me? Uh, does anybody ever you know, want me? All these, all these thoughts creep in. And uh, the last time I was looking for a job, all those thoughts started creeping in. Uh, and, and eventually I just kind of stopped and thought, why, why am I paranoid about this? I'm looking for a job, but I still have a job. I'm not unemployed. The Lord's never had an extended period of time where he's uh, let me stay unemployed. He might in the future. But my fears are completely ungrounded. And in fact, I thought, you know what? This, this is really a lack of faith showing. I'm not trusting God to provide for me. And as a result of that, I'm living in fear and paranoia. And I thought, well, who's my God? And how has he treated me? How has he treated me personally? Well, the job I was in at that point uh, was not a job I searched for. I got it while I was searching, but it's not one I searched for. It's one that God provided through me speaking in a Sunday school. It's Stacy's Sunday school, by the way. I spoke in Stacy Tyson's Sunday school, filling in uh, just at, at, as a guest while I was applying and sending out my resume and doing all these things. And uh, there was a person in there who was on the board of a ministry called True Seekers Fellowship. His name's George Kirkendall. He's with the Lord. He came up to another person who I met with on Monday mornings for prayer and said, hey, what's Seth up to? He said, well, he's working... Here, but he's really looking for another job where he can be more involved in Bible teaching. Well, Truth Seekers Fellowship is a ministry completely centered around Bible teaching, and George Kirkendall was on the board. They said, I think we should hire him. So through, not through a resume I sent out, not through anything I did, the Lord provided the job that I was currently in. Now, is that a reason for me to doubt the goodness of God? Then, So in order, as I was looking for a job leaving that position, I thought, I need to remember how I got the position. And as I remembered that God was faithful and that God was good to me, I thought, I never properly thanked Him for that. Sometimes I, I, I know how this question would be answered in my own life, but I think, you know, if we took... Um, if we imagined our prayer lives spatially, say this is the amount of time you pray for something, asking God for something. I wonder what the proportion would be after that we thanked Him for it after we got it. I would hope that we would thank Him at least as long as we have been entreating Him to give us those things. However, I know in my own life, the ratios are not good. So in being convicted of that and that I never really thanked him appropriately, one of the things I did is I went back, I actually wrote out a prayer. I don't always write out prayers, but it's a a habit I highly encourage you to practice at some point. And what I did is I stole language from the Psalms. I pretended I was writing my own psalm. I was writing a, a psalm of thanks and confidence in the Lord. And I thanked Him for the job He had provided for me. 
And in that, uh, that prayer of thanks, one of the things I, I added in was, and thank you, Lord, for the job you're going to provide for me. I was looking back and thanking him for what he's done. I was looking forward and thanking him for what he hadn't done already. You know what? That completely changed the way in which I was handling that job search. That completely changed the way in which I was facing the unknown. Now, nothing in my circumstances changed. I wasn't any closer to having a job. Nobody had offered me anything. But in, instead of just living in fear, thinking, oh my gosh, what's going to happen to me? Woe is me. I started looking forward. I started thinking, you know, God, I think God's going to do something quite incredible. I can't wait to see what it is. Saints, that's a much more enjoyable way to live. There's a lot more joy in that. So I, I say all that is... All that to say, remember who your God is and remember what He's done for you, both spiritually and practically. So this is remind them. Uh, he then enters into a practical discourse of what are some of the essential truths and basic obedience we need to enter into. There are six items that Paul, almost to Timothy, wants Titus to exhort the people to do. There, there's six items. Some people say seven. Uh, I'm, I'm going to kind of combine one because I think they're related. The first is to be submissive to rulers and authorities. And we're going to go through these real real quick, just hitting each one. Uh, or we're going to list them out first, and then we're going to look at each one individually, and then we're probably going to run out of time for me to get to the second half of the message. The six items, the first one is to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Very interesting. By the way, if you were coming up with a list of six things you wanted to lo- remind believers to do, would that be on your list? I don't think it'd be on men. First, be submissive to rulers and authorities. Number two, to be obedient. Uh, most commentators uh, believe that this one is kind of is somewhat related to number one. So, to be obedient to those same rulers and authorities, but it could also have uh, it could include that and also have a broader sense as well. Number three, to be ready for every good work. By the way, if you ever read through the whole book of Titus, it may be in, in different language in your version, but in the ESV, one of the phrases to look out for, it's a theme throughout the book, is, is the theme of good works. So first, be submissive to rulers and authorities. Second, to be obedient. Third, to be ready for every good work. Fourth, to speak evil of no one. Ouch, that's hard. Fifth, to avoid quarreling. Be gentle. By the way, the, to avoid quarreling, be gentle. Some people take those as, as, as two different commands. I think the language indicates it's, it's really um, two ways of expressing the same thing. Avoid quarreling by being gentle. And sixthly, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. So there's submission to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, secondly. Thirdly, to be ready for every good work. Fourth, to speak evil of no one. Fifth, avoid quarreling, be gentle. And sixth, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Now, the first one, as I said, is a little bit odd for our thinking to be submissive uh, to ruling authorities, be submission to the state and ruling authorities. Uh, but this is a theme throughout Scripture. 
It's, it's not one we tend to pick up on as individualized Western thinkers. But look at Romans 3.13 in your spare time. Look at 1 Peter 2.13-15 as cross-references. This idea of being properly submitted to the authorities is an important theme for believers. A good Christian is a good citizen even if he's in and under bad authority. One of the things that uh, Christians believe in, and, and I don't think we emphasize this n- enough, is that there is a hierarchical nature of the world. Uh, a, a hierarchy means that you know some people are above others, other people are below others. And that, by the way, does not refer to the quality or intrinsic value of a person. It, it refers uh, to their authority. By the way, just because somebody has authority doesn't mean they're more valuable or more important than somebody that doesn't have any. Which that was the shocking thing in their day. In our day, it's shocking to say that there's any type of hierarchical nature in the world. Um, by the way, we don't like the idea of submission. And by the way, to have submission, do you know what you've got to have? Disagreement. Otherwise, it's just consensus. If you only submit when you agree, you're not really submitting, are you? You're just uh, coming to the same conclusions. As as you think about this, by the way, um, we we don't like the idea of submission. And and one of the people who brings this out in a, in a really beautiful way is uh, Calvin. I've been looking at a couple of Calvin's commentaries lately, and uh, the guy is a powerful thinker. One of the things he, he says on this issue, this is really interesting. We are all by nature desirous of power. And the consequence is that no one is willingly subject to another. He says, besides perceiving that nearly all the principalities and powers of the world were at that time opposed to Christ, they thought them unworthy of receiving any honor. Calvin's getting into one, one of the issues that's going on here and that's important for us to talk about. Submission to the rulers and authorities is not dependent on the virtue of those rulers and authorities. At this time, and by the way, an example of this is in the life of Paul. Think about in the book of Acts, what happens to Paul? When he goes into cities... All of a sudden, the magistrates show up. What do they do? They beat him. They persecute him. They throw him in jail. Both at home and abroad, Paul has this happen to him over and over again. Who are the people doing this to him? They're the rulers and the authorities. Is that the sign that they're godly or aligned with God's purposes? No. By the way, in all those instances, Paul never shows an an ounce of rebellion or disdain to the authorities that are persecuting him. So the the submission to the authority doesn't depend on the godliness of those rulers. Now, if there's a, a choice, if the rulers and authorities necessitate that you disobey the law of God, that's a different issue. 
But when it comes to submitting to authorities that are cruel, that are unreasonable, that are wicked, you're supposed to do it. Now, saints, uh, this, if you get into some of the implications of this, and you think, well, not only rulers and authorities in the governmental sense, but there are other ways in which submission and rulers and authorities are brought up that make us uncomfortable. One of the areas that makes us uncomfortable is in marriage. Ooh. You say, wives need to submit to your husbands. That's a dangerous thing to say in this day and age. And one of the objections people will say was, well, aren't we created equal? Absolutely. Well, in, in fact, you might be selling women a little bit short there. And the, the question is, well, you know, what if the wife is very godly, but the husband's wicked? The husband's cruel. Or the husband's an un, immature believer. It doesn't change the hierarchical nature. A, a counterexample I would give that to you on that is, uh, if a police officer pulls you over and gives you instructions, what should you do? Obey those instructions? What if he's a bad police officer? What if, in fact, you as a citizen are more virtuous than that police officer? Should that change whether or not you heed his instruction? Does that change the relational dynamic? If you're a good citizen and he's a bad cop? No. And by the way, it took me a long time to come up with an example for Americans where there is a hierarchical relationship between people. Even thinking about the government, you say, well, aren't, shouldn't we be submitted to politicians? And then Americans say, no, we should grumble a lot and then try and vote in the other party. But, but So policemen's the best example I have for our current culture. The submission to the police is, isn't dependent on how virtuous they are. Secondly, he, he and, oh, and by the way, in this idea of submission, one of the things uh, we think of is one of the reasons why we submit to the governing authority is because we believe in God's overarching authority. <clears throat> that God is not making mistakes with who he puts in power. By the way, again, we think back to the situation Paul is writing Paul experiences persecution, both on a local and regional level in his travels and journeys. Yet he still exhorts people to be submitted. And part of the reason why is he knows that they will be judged for the way in which they rule people. And he, as a citizen, will be judged based on how he submits to that rule and authority. I'm reading a book about Jonathan Edwards, and one of the things it says that it's hard for us to imagine, he said, uh, the Puritans in Edwards' day viewed the entire world as hierarchical. And it was very important to know where exactly you lined up in that hierarchy. And by the way, it's a two-edged sword. If there's a hierarchy, number one, that means there are rulers above me that I need to be submitted to. Another thing it might make me realize is that God has put certain people under me that I am responsible for. That I have a duty to care for, protect, and instruct. And that God is going to call me to account 
both on how I submit to those he has put under me and how I care for those he has put under me. And by the way, he might put people over me that are worse than me. He might put people under me that are better than me. At a church first of Ann's size, he's certainly done both of those. Knowing my wife and kids, I don't know my kids well enough to say this, but I know that's true as well. Secondly, he says, first we submit to rulers' authority. Secondly, we're called to be obedient. Uh, obedience is related to the ruling authorities and the state. Be subject to the, uh, the laws. Christianity has an odd revolutionary sense. Christianity is revolutionary. It changes the way in which you see everything. But if you think about the, the normal way a revolution occurs, what happens? There's this internal conflict. Something's making me upset. Something's making me angry. They're taxing my tea. They did it without asking me whether or not I have, a, without having a representative from me. That is unjust government. That's government without representation. That makes me mad. I have an internal anger brewing in me. I feel as though injustice is occurring. And that anger and internal conflict explodes into external conflict. We must overthrow that which is causing this injustice in our internal turmoil. That's how most revolutions work. Do you know how the revolution of Christianity works? I have an internal peace that has been given by God. And that peace is so powerful, it causes me to love and seek the benefit of those who are externally opposed to me. It doesn't try and change our ex external circumstances to create an internal peace. It's an internal peace that tolerates all sort of external opposition. Godliness and goodness are not constrained by our circumstances. Thirdly, he says, be ready for every good work. I, oh, I'm so out of time. Um, well, we have five more minutes. I, I don't want to give you false hope. Uh, he says, good works must be prepared for. We'll, split, we, we'll have to split this up into two messages. The third thing he says, be ready for every good work. One of the things I want you to notice here is that good works must be prepared for. Think of the Boy Scouts. What's the Boy Scout motto? Be prepared. At least they used to be. I don't know. They, they might have changed it now. But be prepared. Part of, part of the purpose of, of being and becoming a Boy Scout is to be ready for different circumstances. They teach you how to start a fire. They teach you how to tie knots. They teach you wilderness survival skills. They teach you how to use your Swiss Army knife. Why? You can be ready no matter what the circumstances throw at you. The weather will change. Things around you change, but you're always ready to do good, to, to survive the circumstances. Here he says, good works aren't, aren't something that we just can happen haphazardly. There's something we prepare ourselves for. Am I looking for opportunities to get, be good? Am I creating the type of virtue in me that ha so that when I see a need, when I see a difficulty, I respond by helping? Am I going about my life thinking, hey, what can I get for myself? 
How can I leverage this situation to my benefit? Or am I going around looking, who can I help out? Who's in need? How can I be of service? How can I lift others up? How can I encourage them? Now, what can I get from this guy? Good works must be prepared for, anticipated. By the way, um, part of what this means is there might be situations where you have the desire to do good, but you've been left unable by your own lack of preparation. Are we preparing to do good works? Are we ready for it? Are we stretched and limber to do good? Fourthly, it says to speak evil of no one. After this one, we may have to cut off and pick up next week. To speak evil of no one. Uh, This one, uh, again, I said I've been reading Calvin's commentaries. When I read uh, Calvin's commentary on this, I kind of deflated uh, because it was, so, it was so convicting. He said, We know that there is nothing to which the disposition of every man is more prone than to despise others in, comparing, in comparison of himself. The consequence is that many are proud of the gifts of God. This is accompanied by contempt for their brethren, which is immediately followed by insult. He therefore forbids Christians to glory over others or to reproach them, whatever may be their own superior excellence. Uh, I said I read that and I deflated because I immediately thought of one circumstance and later thought of another circumstance in which I was guilty of this. In one circumstance, I was talking about uh, ministerial strategy, and I was comparing my view to somebody else's view, uh, guess which view I was promoting and guess which one I was disparaging. Talking about how if we just did things my way, everything would be better. And this other person doesn't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're talking about. And now I've got to go, and uh, later this week, I've got to go apologize to the person who I was talking that way to and say, hey, I'm sorry. That was my pride talking. I I was disparaging that person. They don't deserve that. I was just trying to elevate myself. I'm not looking forward to that, by the way. And then another way I noticed it is in in bragging. In in bragging, uh, we tend to highlight our own accomplishments uh, to impress other people. One of the ways I do this, and this is something new to me, is uh, parents have a tendency to brag. Uh, With twins, one of the ways I've been bragging is about how little sleep I get. And... uh, I noticed at one point, I was like, yeah, I rounded that in my favor. I took away a half hour, an hour of my sleep so that it seemed more impressive that I was awake at this time and functioning somewhat competently. Now that elevates me, but it also, in a way, it disparages my wife. For the extra hour, she stayed up with the kids. Now, now people think, now I shortchanged her an hour of taking care of them. In my verbal descriptions, I'm, I'm elevating myself and I'm robbing others of glory. Saints, in, in all these practices, what's he doing? He's trying to get us to become a people who are virtuous. 
who reflect the character and nature of their God, who remember who their God is and act accordingly. We'll look at the other ways in which we reflect the character of God, and we look at one of the tools, one of the greatest tools we have in order to accomplish that purpose next week. Because I don't know if you're like me, but being submissive to rulers, being obedient, being ready for every good work, not speaking evil of others, those are difficult tasks to which I need aid and help. We have a great strategy for that coming up next week. Let us close in prayer and then receive the benediction. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy called poured out upon us. Lord, we thank you that it is because of your equipping grace that we can pursue these objectives. Lord, we thank you that we who were not once not a people have been made a people. We thank you, Lord, that you have saved us, that you have redeemed us, that you have called us by name, that you have given us a purpose. Lord, we thank you that we are not saved by good works, but because you have saved us, we have the ability to walk in good works for the benefit of others and for our benefit. In all these things, Lord, we pray that we might be honoring you and seeking your glory. Lord, give us the strength and the power through your word and your Holy Spirit to accomplish these purposes for Christ's glory, now and forevermore. Amen.